Hello and welcome to the Midweek Podcast where we discuss what it looks like to flourish as disciples of Jesus in the midst of the unique moment that we're living in. Uh, I'm Matt Deason and I'm joined today by Coulter Batterton and what uh, an interesting week it has been. Into the drama of COVID-19 comes another explosive layer of tension as last week George Floyd was murdered by police officers in Minneapolis and a nation already on edge and under lockdown uh, just started to uh, blow up. You have uh, demonstrations and riots in all 50 states across the country, uh, anger and division and hatred being uh, kind of thrown in our faces and brought to the forefront of the national consciousness. And we want to talk about it this morning. Uh, What's our path forward as disciples of Jesus in moments like these? How should we address and speak into the drama that is unfolding? And what role do we have to play as disciples of Jesus moving forward? Uh, It kind of goes without saying that this drama, uh, like all dramas in our nation, is sadly uh, getting politicized uh, because apparently our country is just obsessed with partisan politics. So whether it's a virus or someone being murdered, it somehow becomes a political issue. And in addition to that, you've got this other framework of Black Lives Matter versus Blue Lives Matter with this unspoken question of, okay, so which one matters or which one matters more? And it can feel like you're being forced to choose sometimes. Uh, And it can be hard to know how to move forward as followers of Jesus without getting co-opted into a camp or a political party. Uh, But the first thing that we have to say as we wade into a topic like this is sort of a a baseline uh, proclamation from as a follower of Jesus thing is that an image bearer of God was wrongfully killed as a helpless captive under police control and authority. And the nature of it was disturbing and wrong and grotesque. And so at a base level, there has to be this impulse toward lament and mourning with those who mourn and recognizing it and just calling it out for what it is. It was wrong. It was tragic. It was evil. It never should have happened. It was unjust, horrific. Uh, We hope and pray that that never happens again. Uh, Most of us uh, in our community cannot imagine what it's like to be afraid of your governing authority. Uh, to be afraid of the police officers that are patrolling your street, to live in fear of persecution or even wrongful death at the hands of those who, in theory, are supposed to be protecting you. Uh, So most of us can't dream of what that feels like or how disturbing that is to have that weight, that fear always lurking kind of on your shoulders. And if we don't start by recognizing how wrong this was, uh, how disturbing, how sickening and unjust, if we don't begin by trying to empathize with those who are oppressed, then we actually undermine our our moral witness in the world. Uh, We lose our moral credibility. Our voice uh, ceases to matter because we haven't taken the time to see the injustice in the world and to feel it. 
and if that's the case this morning, then uh, we really have nothing to say. I mean, nothing that we could say really matters at all. Uh, or in the words of Paul, if I speak without love, I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Uh, if we come in without empathy and love, we're just white noise. We're just adding to the headache of our reality. Uh, so if there's any hint of trying to justify what happened or excuse it or downplay it or pretend that there really isn't much racism left in America, it's just a few people, uh, then we actually lose some of our credibility and prove to the world that we aren't willing to see the situation for what it is. Uh, racism is real and alive and well in America. And I think I've become more aware of that, um, marrying into a family of Hispanic immigrants, uh, because we want to think that racism isn't there. I do. I want to think racism isn't there or that it doesn't exist, but it's so disheartening to see that it does exist, that it is there. And it really hits home when it's a matter of family. And I've sort of seen some of that play out uh, in my own family. Um, but oftentimes we're so far removed that we can't empathize. It's just too far from home. Uh, many of you probably know uh, Joe Whitwer, who's the uh, pastor of Life Center, which is the biggest church in Spokane. Uh, he's a great guy. And his daughter uh, adopted two kids from Ethiopia uh, over a decade ago. So black African kids that she's been raising uh, these two boys here in Spokane for the last decade or more. And I don't do this often, but I want to read her social media post uh, that, that she posted recently on raising her boys here in Spokane. Uh, this is what she says. She says, while I know I have much to learn and will never understand what it's like to be in their shoes, I have witnessed the pain caused by racism through the eyes of my boys. My boys were innocently playing walkie-talkies with their cousins in their cousin's front yard. Neighbors saw two black boys, got suspicious, and called the police. The police showed up. While the police were kind, my boys were left humiliated, scared, and deeply pained that this is their reality, all because of the color of their skin. They have been told they are evil because they are black. Uh, called the N-word by ignorant adults, told they were not welcome for a play date until they went home and scrubbed their skin off, and told that they are the color of poop. I could go on and on. Our white children can innocently play outside without fear of the police being called upon them because they're suspicious for being white. They aren't being told they are evil, called racial slurs, told that they are the color of human waste, or told to scrub their skin off for being white. And they certainly aren't growing up heading out for a jog and getting shot for being white. My sweet boys will soon grow up to be strong black men, innocent, upstanding, kind, and trustworthy. Yet some people will only see the color of their skin and think differently of them. With all that's going on, my heart fears for their safety and longs for change. I'm speaking up on their behalf, in behalf of all the innocent men, women, and children unjustly losing their lives or experiencing unnecessary pain. Racism still exists and we can do better. I loved what Julie Wilson said, all people are created in God's image, made for a divine purpose, loved beyond comprehension. Anything that goes against this is wrong. Racism, murder, prejudice, hate, all sinful all things we are called to fight against. 
Let's listen, learn, educate ourselves, seek justice, and continue advocating with them and for them. Um, And I mean, that post just about brings me to tears. And that's here. I mean, that's us. That's our city. And we have to allow ourselves to feel the weight of that. Uh, But if we can enter into their experience and call this thing out for what it is, then I think we begin to sense where some of the, uh, some of that anger, some of the injustice of it all. And only after we've attempted to place ourselves in their shoes and really said, yes, this is real and it's here, only then can we begin to chart a way forward. Uh, But that still leaves the question, what is the way forward? Uh, How should we relate to Black Lives Matter as a movement or Blue Lives Matter? Uh, Is there a biblical stance in all of this? What is the way forward practically for us as followers of Jesus? So I'm joined this morning by Coulter Batterton. And Coulter, thanks for joining us. Um, I'm wondering if maybe you can start this morning by sharing some of your experience, uh, just kind of firsthand what's been unfolding in Spokane in the last few days yeah great to be here matt and um just would really um, agree with you and resonate in what you said and that um the best place to start is to recognize that what happened was a tragedy um and that um when evil and when we see tragedy um, the two best responses are to um, call it out for what it is and to empathize um, with those that are hurting um, because that's what we're called to, um, and we see that in the life of Christ. Um, and he's, he's called us to do that, and we're called to um, that higher standard. And, and um, it's maybe not the easy way, but it's definitely the thing that we're called to. Mm. Um, so I love what you had to say and what you had to share. Um, so as many of you know, I'm a journalism major about to graduate from Eastern Washington, Um, and, um, because of that, I think I've developed kind of a natural curiosity for social events. Um, and so in hearing that there was going to be a um, Black Lives Matter slash George Floyd, um, demonstration and protest down in Spokane on Sunday, um, me and my roommate decided to go down and to see, um, maybe not perhaps to participate, um, particularly in the protest, but to observe, Um, and to see what was going on. Um, And so me and my friend went down there. Um, When we first got there, um, there was about 300 people. Um, And by the time we left, there was well over 3,000. So definitely a situation that has touched the hearts of people from every walk of life, um, every social class, um, and every race, um, which I think is encouraging to see that there is a response um, from really every community. And, um, but, um, amidst that, I'll just kind of speak to what I was able to observe. I tried to do my best to talk to every different, um, person I could and just trying to get a, a feel for kind of what was going on down there. Um, and what kind of what there was, was there was a few different groups of people. There were the police officers who were, um, keeping an eye on the situation and they had been invited by, um, the organizers of the event um, to make sure that the event remained peaceful, um, which is encouraging that there was a uh, an attempt to keep law enforcement involved and to keep them informed. Um, and then on the other side, there were protesters. Obviously, as things get bigger, things tend to escalate because people get more excited. Um, and so um, there were some people who were walking up to cops and 
um, saying some fairly, well, not even fairly, very, very vicious things that, that shouldn't be said to anyone regardless of their profession. Um, but there were also people who were going up and thanking cops for their service while also wanting to talk to them about what it looks like to move forward and to do better. Um, and I think um, that was kind of the two camps you had is that you had police officers and then you had um, demonstrators who were really angry and didn't know what to do with that anger. Mm. Um, and so they were lashing out at police officers that they probably didn't know um, who didn't know what their background was. And um, I actually saw a police officer there who I knew um, and to see him have things yelled at him and just knowing him as a man of God, it was deeply heartbreaking for me. Um, and it's just, it's a difficult situation and it's just, um, the brokenness of humanity was on full display. Um, and, um, as it progressed, the more people that came, as I said, the more loud it got, the more rowdy it got. Um, people have been locked inside for a long time Mm. and I think that's only adding kerosene to the fire, if that makes sense. Um, and, um, but the, the beginning part, which, uh, this would be about two to three thirty, is when I was there initially, um, things were fairly um, peaceful. Of course, there were exchanges that were not something that I would do personally, but nothing that escalated to violence or went beyond the scope of something you would see at a rally. Um, unfortunately, as many of you know, um, it escalated towards the end of the night Um, And I actually went back with one of my friends to kind of see what was going on um, to just try to capture and understand. And I think the whole thing is I was just profoundly curious about what was going on and and what was what was it about this thing? What was it about George Floyd and this situation that just kind of kicked over the hornet's nest and really stirred something in people? And as I went down there, um, what I would say is that First off, most of the protesters weren't there when things were turned into more of a civil disturbance. So I would say most of the um, people who are really looking for social change and who were peaceful had already gone home. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I saw and what I spoke to with people was there were people there who were just there to stir the pot. um, And then there were a lot of people there who were ready to be stirred up. Mm. Um, And so... There were people throwing rocks at police officers. The police officers were shooting tear gas into the crowd to try to kind of take care of the situation. Um, And it was um, definitely a very um, volatile, intense, and um, a much worse situation than the one that went on in the day. Um, So definitely an interesting situation. I would say I was profoundly fascinated and interested. Um, And I would say I learned a lot about... Um, a movement that I I have not understood a lot because I've only seen it through the lens of maybe a Facebook post or through the news. Um, So that was very eye-opening and helpful for me. Um, If any of you are thinking about going down to a possible demonstration or to a protest, um, my only words of advice is that um, be aware that it is a very tense and, and volatile and uh, I wouldn't say dangerous, but it's it's right at the tipping point at every moment. Um, so go down there with your eyes open. Um, I'm I'm fully supportive of people going down to support and and um, protest against injustice because that's what we're called to. We're called to um, act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with our God. But um, 
at the same time, we do need to be, um, we need to be, what's the word I'm looking to? I think kind of just like going in with your eyes wide open, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think like what you were describing to me is just the, it's just a very complicated thing. Like at least how I imagine like civil rights marches of the past is like, there's clear leadership. There's a clear goal. We're going to gather for this time at this purpose. We're going to march to here, you know, everyone's invited. It's going to be peaceful. That's the goal. Um, and this is a little more layered and a little more complicated in that you don't necessarily have a clear voice or clear leadership. It's very like kind of the voice and leadership is very decentralized. And so even a lot of the people who are showing up and they're like, I am dyed in the wool, Black Lives Matter, you know, racial like activist. I'm all about trying to promote social justice. They can show up to these events and say, I'm not really sure who's in charge here. Um, or like, I'm not really sure, you know, Obviously, we want to voice our our disgust over what happened, but I'm not really sure like what if there's a tangible goal, if there's a tangible voice, if there's a tangible leader. I think that makes it complicated. I think maybe this is speculation, but I think maybe because there isn't a clear leader who's calling for nonviolence, it leaves room for some of the Black Lives Matter people to be stirred toward that end. But I think what you're describing, at least in Spokane, is that a lot of the stirring happens from people who honestly don't really care about the issue that much. They're there to riot. Like they just say like, hey, open door. Like if you love anarchy, if you love rioting, if you've ever dreamed about looting the Apple store, head downtown because there's going to be thousands of people and the cops aren't going to be able to handle everybody. So I think it's important to recognize like just going into those situations with your eyes open, recognizing man, we don't want to be silent in the face of injustice, but just know what kind of situation you're walking into. And because if you only watch it on the news, you know, you have people watching thinking, oh, so Black Lives Matter, it must be a terrorist group, you know, like they're just there or they're just there to loot. And then you realize, wait a second, if you're actually down on on the ground in these rallies, all the people who were there with like a, a, a view or vision for social justice for the most part have gone home with some exceptions. But then you have this rush of people who come in and say, today's my day. Like today, tonight it's anarchy. And then they kind of go for it. So just recognizing that like, as we try and navigate these things as followers of Jesus, showing up to this is going to feel, it's just going to be different than what I imagine is like a Martin Luther King march where you're like clear leader, clear vision, clear timeline, very clear statement of nonviolence. I don't imagine there being like a bunch of random hop-ons who are just like, let's light the city on fire during the MLK march or what, you know, it's just like, but you're getting that now where people are just, I, I forget what it was, like 30 banks got, you know, looted in Los Angeles, it's just like all over the country, you have these things blowing up. And uh, I think it kind of fits in with the coronavirus theme of the podcast because that just is, it yeah. just makes it harder um, in, in every sense. And I do think it's been fuel on the fire. So it's a complex thing. Um, and just recognize, hey, we don't want to be silent in the face of injustice. But if you go to the rally this next Sunday, you, you just don't know. It could be much more peaceful than the last one. And they might go through, you know, they might go the extra mile to ensure that, or uh, it could be a repeat, but there's gonna be people who show up saying, I don't really care about the issue, but I'd love to throw some rocks or bust some windows. And so just just being aware of that, I think is important. Yeah, and I think um, just to kind of cap that off, um, as as followers of Jesus, we, we have to straddle that line between um, what Paul says in Romans to honor the governing authority um, and the call that we see from Jesus 
um, to help the poor and the oppressed. Mm. And we have to find that fine line um, because the reality is, is if we're down there during a civil disturbance, which is what was going on at the end of the night, and I would almost, I would definitely separate those into two different things. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a peaceful um, yet intense Black Lives Matter protest um, in the earlier part of the day, which devolved into a separate thing that became right. a riot slash, I wouldn't call it a pure riot like some of the other places, but definitely civil disturbance. And um, you just want to find that balance in that you don't want to make the jobs for the police officers harder, um, but we still want to stand up for the oppressed in, in the communities and in our communities. Um, and even cops are recognizing the injustice. And I know many of you saw on the news that um, a lot of police officers for the Spokane Police Department took a knee with protesters um, in a sign of solidarity um, because most people who see this situation can recognize the evil behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, and as we said before, our first response needs to be empathy and a seeking for justice. Um, and I think um, that's emphasized on both sides. Um, and we need to just continue to move forward and having conversations um, and doing the best we can to support those in our community who are feeling marginalized. Mm. Wow, really well said. Yeah, I think it would be good for us to kind of turn the corner and start talking and dreaming about what is what is the way uh, forward in all of this. Because sometimes when you approach the issue, or I guess the issue kind of approaches you, it kind of feels like you're forced to choose like, oh, either you have to be like a blue lives matter person. And in its worst form, you're saying kind of, hey, forget about racism, forget about the oppressed, we need to protect these folks or whatever. And then on the other side, it feels like you can get sucked into well, like, I don't, I don't know if I want to, like, take that, you know, hook, line and sinker with everything that goes along with um, some of the that happens in some of these rallies and this sort of attitude that the end justifies the means and yeah, let everything burn. And if, you know, if cops get injured, that's totally fine. And the end always justifies the means and we have a righteous end. And I think that there's really a, a, a way forward in this, a third way, if I can call it that, that's about the kingdom of God breaking into this world. And we see that first and foremost demonstrated it really well in the life of Jesus. I mean, if you think about the time that Jesus lived in, uh, there were uh, Roman oppressors ro- ruling over their land. And there were some benefits of the rule of Rome. And, and of course, Rome was really quick to promote those and point out those benefits. But there was also a brutality to it. And there were uh, thousands or even tens of thousands of people who were crucified uh, in Israel under Roman rule. Uh, some of them maybe just to, to send a signal or because there was so much hatred between the Romans and the, the, the oppressed Israelites. And so as a result in Israel, like they, there's this ongoing, you know, the talk of the day is how do we respond to Roman oppression? Uh, what should we do? Uh, and then you have the Pharisees saying, oh, we're going to like follow the law and distance ourselves and kind of go this this righteous route. You have this group called the Zealots who were armed revolutionaries who were constantly causing these like uprisings and killing Roman officers. And when you when you start to think about the ins and outs and the pressures of that situation, I can't help but see some of the ways that it mirrors what we're going through, where you have people who are saying we're being oppressed. You're not treating us fairly purely because of who we are, because of our race. Uh, And then you have different reactions to that. Well, do we do a nonviolent form of protest? Do we, you know, um, 
just chase after our own culture and try and ignore the Romans? Do we um, rise up in violent re revolution and kill Roman officers in order to, you know, send this message back the other way? And Jesus lived in that. Like that was the, he grew up in that environment. He lived in that environment. He preached and spoke in that environment. Uh, and I think he offered this very creative, nonviolent kingdom of God way forward. And it, he had a way of calling people to himself in such a way that they were reconciled to God and they were reconciled to one another at the same time. And I, I'm sure you've heard this pointed out before, but within his group of 12, you have a zealot, Simon the Zealot, who you know has a knife under his cloak and is ready to like kill Roman officers. And you have Matthew the tax collector, who's this despised sort of face of Rome, uh, the hand of the oppressor in the community. And yet Jesus demonstrated beautifully that as the kingdom of God comes breaking in, he's he Jesus himself is moving forward in this nonviolent, counterintuitive kingdom of God way uh, that that isn't isn't condoning what the Romans have done and isn't promoting violent revo revolution. He walked that line. So you can even see that in some of the questions that they try and trap Jesus in. Do we pay taxes to Caesar? Well, everybody all of a sudden takes a deep breath and leans in and like, oh, what's he going to say? Because he's either going to condone what the Romans and Roman rule and their, and their oppression, or he's going to call for violent revolution. And that was part of so much of the, the drama and even disappointment that the crowds had over Jesus in the final uh, week of his life was around this issue and this tension. And yet, I think he really showed us this new way forward where all of a sudden, you know, Simon the Zealot and Matthew, uh, the Roman tax collector, are able to somehow stand hand in hand uh, in this community that's forming around Jesus. And there's this, this power of reconciliation that's, that's possible in the gospel and, and around Jesus that we see in Jesus and we see in the gospels. And I, we, we still see that type of reconciliation uh, happening today. I mean, Coulter and I have both seen firsthand the way that the gospel is transforming uh, pockets of South Africa. We've both had the chance to um, travel there, to make friends. We have church partners there. Um, and it's been so powerful to see what's happened in their community that's just really freshly coming out of apartheid. I mean, you talk to people there and they're like fresh out of this like very, very oppressive system that's been lifted but left an incredibly deep impression on people. And yet in the midst of that, you see the gospel coming in and bringing healing and bringing reconciliation. So one of the stories that comes to mind, which I'll probably butcher because I, I heard it like two years ago, uh, was the story of a man named Justice, who's uh, a black African man, uh, grew up under apartheid. So, so imagine like basically like slave-like conditions working on a white person's farm. Uh, and if I remember the story right, he, he witnessed his grandmother being murdered by the white farm owner, uh, no repercussion. Like there's, there's, no, there's no justice, there's no court system, like no one will hear your case. Boom, she's killed in front of your eyes. You have nothing and you have no course of action. So you just have to imagine, this is, this is a guy that we know who lived in this regime and under that hatred and, and division and racism and that system was lifted 
And Steve Oliver, who many of you know, uh, ended up later purchasing this farm. I think the very farm that Justice had been, you know, forced to work on that where his grandmother had been killed. And uh, as, you know, Steve Oliver's coming in and being spirit led, one of the things the spirit led him to do was take like uh, a significant portion of his livestock and give it to Justice and his family and like gift some of the land that was this farm that was a symbol of oppression to Justice and his family and to watch Jesus transform their hearts and transform their lives. And Justice went on to be a leader in this church that was um, formed in this community where black and white were together worshiping in the same community. And they became this incredible symbol of hope of th this can actually happen. Black and white can, can worship in the same community. They can be family together in Christ. So it happened in Jesus' day and it's, it's happening uh, still. And so I think for me and Coulter, maybe for you as well, mm -hmm. there were some really powerful lessons to carry, uh, to take away from South Africa and what they've gone through and the way they're experiencing healing uh, in the gospel around Jesus uh, coming out of a very oppressive uh, racist regime. Yeah, and um, just to speak into that, i um, gone to South Africa two times now um, and built a relationship with um, someone you guys have probably heard mentioned several times, an incredible man named Malifa Kalasang, who um, leads a church that we're actually partnered with. We've had, um, because of the um, generosity that you guys have had over the last few months, um, we've supported feeding people um, who literally have are, are very destitute and um, I've, I've liked to tell people that um, going to South Africa is almost like going back in time um, in the sense that um, you're experiencing kind of the, the effects of a racist system that's fresh off mm, being lifted. Right. Um, it's almost like going to a place that's just come out of war. You can still kind of see the effects of it and you can see the, the buildings that have been that haven't been rebuilt or the, th or the justice that hasn't happened. Um, and, um, when I was in South Africa, goodness, this would have been in December of 2018. Um, I was sitting in a township. So South Africa is d divided very starkly, um, between black and white, um, even to the point of structure. So the white part of town is very, very nice. So think, um, maybe like Manitoba. Almost, almost like a little like European looking mm -hmm. town, but yeah. just like very well done. And yeah, yeah. And then the opposite is like pure destitution and poverty and not a lot of running water inside, not a lot of electricity, um, a place that's even very different from the United States and can be hard to conceptualize if you haven't been there in person. You kind of have to think of like a slum. Mm -hmm. Like I don't know if they, yeah. I don't think they call them slums there, right. but if you can imagine what that looks like mm -hmm. in some place in Africa or India, it's like right. slum-like conditions, mm -hmm. very basic, like kind yeah. of cinder block housing mm -hmm. you know that kind of stuff yeah and so you have the townships where the um, black community has been forced to live because of the system of apartheid that while it's been lifted uh, much like it has or was in the united states um, it takes a really long time to move out of those things and kind of you know piece by piece and decade by decade one shackle is taken off at a time um, and then, you know, they, they're living in such a different situation. But I remember asking Lifa, who's in his um, late 40s now, um, what was it like to be under apartheid? Because he got to grow up in it. Um, and I'm always um, fascinated by people's stories. 
Um, and, and all he said was, it's really hard. It was really hard. Um, and in my mind, like maybe it was a good enough answer, but I wanted to get a little bit more out of him. And so I asked him, you know, um, what's it like now? Like, how is it different? Um, and I asked him very specifically, there was a large Anglican church in the white part of town um, that was connected to his um, area. It was this huge Anglican church. And I said, could you go there? Um, and he said, I could go there with you, but I would have to sit in the back on the black bench. Um, and so he's living in a place that's very, very starkly racist um, in a way that is prevalent every single day in his life. Um, that is just, um, thankfully, we have seen some progress in the United States. And right. um, it can be easy to forget that. And we've come a long way. We're, we have not arrived in any sense of the matter. Um, but we are moving forward, and that is something to be encouraged by. Even though we have much to do and much, mm. much to do better, right. um, it is good to remember and be thankful for the for the victories that have been fought by brave men and women that have come yeah. before us. Um, and um, after I asked him that, Lifa, uh, Lifa just turned to me and he said, "You know, all I want to do, Coulter, is to be able to share the love of Jesus with them, um, because that's the answer." Mm. Um, and these are people who. Um, oppress him on a daily basis in a way that very few people in all of the United States could ever experience. Mm. And yet his response, even though he's in essentially abject poverty and is in a situation that I can barely relate to while I'm there, mm. um, his response is, I want to share the love of Jesus with them because I know that that's the answer. Mm. Um, and I think that we'll go into this more later on, but that is our response and our response needs to be um, bringing the kingdom of God in because the kingdom of God has been changing um, the world for 2,000 years um, and will continue to do it until the day when um, Jesus' um, true kingdom breaks in. Um, and that hope and that future that we're, we're holding on to, um, we get to usher in in part right now. Um, while also holding on to that future um, that is going to be incredible. It's going to be a future. Um, it's just a future where uh, the things that we've struggled with for so long, um, Jesus will rectify to himself. Yeah. And we will get to stand with one another from every tribe and tongue and nation yeah. and worship our God. Um, and that's the hope we hold on to even now. And that's the hope that we begin to usher in as a community. Amen. Well, yeah, I, I think for me, that's really where my heart goes when I think when I come back from a place like South Africa and then see, oh, man, you're right. It's it's a totally different world over here, but there's still so much to do. And yet I come back uh, just inspired by what the gospel can do and think, wow, we really do want like part of the solution is having honestly, worshiping communities that are reflective of our future, that are reflective of what you see in the book of Revelation and every tribe, tongue, and nation coming together, this incredible unity in Christ. And if Paul were alive, he'd say, you already have the unity. You are one in Christ. You are one new humanity. You just need to start acting like it. And so with as the kingdom breaks in, you should have every mix. You should have police officers and working class African Americans standing hand in hand and worshiping God together because of what's possible in Christ. And I've been thinking about that more recently as a church leader and thinking like, well, if that's really part of the solution, uh, how do we do that? Because I think part of what I see is you either have like 
basically what I would call white church that's inviting in a few like black people. If we just think about for a moment, the black white divide saying, hey, we're going to do white church and kind of our culture, our way, but where it's open, you know, we can, you know, invite, you know, a few black people in or on the other side, it's more like black church really doing things their way, but inviting in a few white people. And I think even there, there's like a dichotomy. There's, there's still dividing walls of hostility, if I can call them that, where we're not like actively hostile toward each other, but it's still kind of a, well, you should come to us. Well, no, no, no. Like this is who we are. You should come to us. And I think that there's still something really fresh and new for us to take hold of as the American church and a lot of dreaming for us to do in terms of what does it look like to be one new humanity coming together in a kingdom culture that is, and this is the important part in my mind, that is somewhat foreign to both groups. Mm -hmm. Like for us to go to, you know, a true black church it would feel a bit disorienting, a bit foreign. And the same, the exact same thing can be true in the reverse. Uh, but then we're in this, we're in this series right now in the book of Galatians, and it's all about Jew and Gentile coming together. And Paul's helping them navigate what the new culture should look like. And so if you think about the ancient world, Jews and Gentiles culturally couldn't have been any more different. And yet they were coming together and they were both sacrificing enormous portions of their own culture and identity in order to form a new kingdom community and be part of the one new humanity. And so as like a white church leader, if I'm really introspective, I think, well, of course, like any person, any background, any, you know, race, ethnicity can come in. We will smile, give them a hug, welcome them in. I'm starving for, you know, more diversity in our community. Uh, and yet, it's more than that. Like, I actually have to think beyond that and think, well, it's not just about like, oh, if I smile and, and you know, give everybody a hug, we'll all get along great. I think for me, one of the things I've been wrestling with is that there's this bigger cultural piece behind it. It's not going to be good enough to do quote unquote white church and just say our doors open and they're on the other side of town saying, hey, we're doing black church and our doors open too. And then everybody just kind of stays where they are. So, but I think there's something that was really heroic and courageous in Jew and Gentile coming together saying we're both going to set aside so much of what makes us feel comfortable. And you've seen that through our series through the book of Galatians, like they are uncomfortable coming together and eating together and trying to figure out like, this is foreign to me. I don't know how to operate as, as this one new humanity. And yet in the end, they both set aside and sacrifice enormous portions of their own culture and cultural preferences and some of their cultural identity. And so the thing I've been wrestling with is, Am I? Am I willing to do that? Are we willing to do that? Uh, what does that even look like? What is the one new humanity that most, makes both groups slightly uncomfortable, but allows us to come together in a fresh way? So I don't have an answer to that, but honestly, everything that's happened in the last day, I've, I've thought through all of this. How do we relate to Black Lives Matter? How do we relate to Blue Lives Matter? What does it look like in Jesus, in South Africa, in Spokane, as his kingdom breaks in? And I think there's some unanswered questions in my mind of what what else could we give up? What could we adjust? What's it going to look like uh, to have truly have one new humanity and a fresh expression of kingdom culture? Yeah, and I love that. And I think um, just to touch on that point in particular is that it 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 goes beyond just um, asking people to assimilate into what you already know. Um, right. And it's really it's it's not that we're asking people to just pick up our culture, even though that would be easier for us. Right. <laughs> um, 
But if we see kind of this big debate that happened in the church in the Council of Jerusalem, which was like, can like what do what is the role of Gentiles? Do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to follow the food laws? Um, and I'm reminded of what Peter says, um, you know, and this is after he's been you know called out by Paul, and um, it's kind of going back and forth with the story of Acts, and then we see it again in Galatians. But um, Peter says. Um, that I saw, you know, I've seen Gentiles be filled with the Spirit. Mm. Um, and I've seen them exercise the gifts of the Spirit, so they must have the Spirit in them. Right. Um, and I think that is that we have to remember that this is about the kingdom of God. Um, and it's not about our culture. Mm. Um, and it wasn't about Peter's culture, even though Peter's culture was, in in essence, the culture of the people of God. Right. Um, and, and was designed by God and Moses and had a rich history of being the best religious system to date. Right. And yet Jesus called him and has called all of us to go further than that. Wow. Um, it's to set aside our differences. It's to set aside um, what God has put or what we are born into um, um, and to sacrifice our mm. own selves um, so that um, we can see the kingdom of God break in. Mm. Um, and when we can start doing that, um, the kingdom of God is going to break in because Jesus says that we will do greater things than him. Mm. Um, and I think, um, I don't know if you have anything else to share on that before we jump into the next stuff. But. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we should, we kind of need to wrap it off for timing's sake. But I think for me, it's just ending with a few um, just a few practical thoughts on like, what do we actually do? We talked a little bit about the rally. Like, do I go to the rally? Do I not go to the rally? What should be, I, what should I be aware of if I do go? So I'm not, we're not going to rehash all of that. Uh, I think people, there's not going to be one blanket answer for everybody. Like you have to sort it out. Like, what do I feel called to and walk in with your eyes wide open. But moving forward, I think kind of the universal things for me is that we should all be praying and not and I say this a lot, but like not praying is just empty repetition or like it doesn't matter. Uh, as Coulter, I think you were saying earlier, it can be so daunting to think about these giants, like the giant of poverty, the giant of racism, the giant of, you know, cultural divides. Uh, how do I pray, you know, toward those giants and against them? Uh, but I think we do need to do that. And prayer for me starts being introspective. It starts with a sort of repentant heart before God saying, Lord, show me. Like, show me where I've been part of the problem. Show me what it looks like to do what Jesus did and set aside some of his privilege. Well, Jesus set aside all of his privilege, but saying, okay, I've been given a privileged place. What does it look like to actually lay aside my right to exercise my privilege for the benefit of somebody else? Uh, that all happens in prayer in my mind. Like we're praying, we're before God, we're repentant. We're saying, Lord, what would you have me do next? How can I be part of your uh, beautiful, glorious, counterintuitive solution. Uh, I think another universal for me is that uh, we should all be promoting justice using peaceful and nonviolent means. Mm -hmm. So when something's evil, we have to have the backbone to say like, well, let, we're, not, we're not just going to say, oh, let's just like debate that for a little bit and think about like, no, when something's really clearly evil, we have to call it, call evil what it is. Yeah. Uh, I think in many cases, it's going to be working for policy changes that help eradicate some of this, some of the divisions that we have and just kind of create level playing field for everyone. Uh, but uh, aside from that, like, I think it's going to be, it's going to be different for each person and we have to be careful not to judge and condemn one another, mm -hmm. which I think is an important thing. You know, like you get the person who's really fired up and saying, I'm going down to the rally and if you don't go 
you're not even a follower of Jesus, you know, like people are dying and you're just, you know, sitting in your home, you know, watching Netflix and like there's judgment there. And then there's judgment and misunderstanding the other way. Oh, you're just getting sucked in by, you know, all of this stuff. And you're joining some terrorist group that's just looting stores and, you know, you've lost Christ or whatever. And like, we can be so quick to judge and misunderstand one another. So I think creating room to say, we all need to be about justice. We all need to call evil what it is. We all need to pray. I'm hoping that when a good policy comes along, we can all give it the thumbs up and give it our vote. So those are like some universal things, but there's also going to be a lot of differences and a lot of particulars, and we have to have grace for the, the for the diversity within the body. So, uh, any any final thoughts? Yeah, I think um, just kind of two parting um, one story and one parting quote from some two from two um, fairly incredible men, and the first would be from a guy. Um, named Daryl Davis, um, who I had never heard of. Um, and I would say he was no one um, particularly remarkable um, before he did what was something very natural to him. Um, but um, Daryl Davis is a like a boogie-woogie, really cool um, jazz, um, black jazz player. Um, just a really awesome guy. Um, and I would recommend that you guys go listen to his um, longer TED Talk because this is going to be a condensed version of that. Um, but... So he was at a bar that he got invited to to play some jazz, and he was the only black guy in there. Um, and he, you know, was playing the piano, and he's a very talented man. Um, and he came off the stage to take a break, and, and a white man approached him and said, hey, I want to buy you a drink. Um, and as they sat down, um, he said to Daryl Davis, you know, this is the first time I've ever sat down at a table with a black man. Um, and Daryl Davis said, oh, how could that be? Like, and he laughed. Um, and then uh, the white guy he was sitting with pulled out his um, KKK membership card um, and Daryl Davis stopped laughing um, and it got um, it got a little tense. Um, but um, Daryl Davis had a conversation with him. Um, and then every time he would go back to that bar, um, this KKK member would bring all his friends with him to see um, Daryl Davis play because he played like one of their favorite white piano players um, and they loved him. Um, so as this story progresses, um, and as I said before, this is the condensed version, but um, Daryl Davis somehow like weaseled his way into a meeting with the head of the KKK across the whole country. Um, and as, as uh, almost all of you know, the KKK is an awful organization, um, and it's not a place where African Americans are welcome. Um, and I think you can imagine that the leader of that organization probably wouldn't be very open to conversation with an African-American. Um, but Daryl Davis didn't tell him he was black and they had a conversation. <laughs> well, um, until he showed up. Right, yeah, until he like, showed oh. up and then he, he obviously figured it out because he was able to see. And um, they had this conversation and somehow they became friends. Um, and Daryl Davis would go to KKK rallies with the head of the KKK and, and Daryl Davis is a black man. And it was just this very strange relationship because you think, how is that even possible? Like that's, that, that is complete polar opposites. Um, and they developed this relationship and I'll read this quote and then kind of condense kind of what he did. But he said, um, a few years back, Mr. Kelly decided to give up the Ku Klux Klan. He renounced it and gave me his robe and hood. Um, this is the robe of the Klan leader. Um, right here. This is the same robe you saw wearing in the video. And of course, this is the hood and mask. Keep in mind when two enemies are talking, they're not fighting. They're talking. They might be yelling and screaming, but at least they're talking. 
It's when the talking ceases that the ground becomes fertile for violence. So keep the conversation going. People learn racism through dialogue. Somebody tells them about it. So if you can learn it through dialogue, you can also unlearn it through dialogue. Mm -hmm. And he ends it by saying, so a black guy walks into a bar and sits down at the piano. Um, and to date, Daryl Davis has had 237 KKK members give up their membership and give them their robes. Um, and that's just one man who chose to have a conversation with someone who he didn't understand and who they didn't understand him. Um, so that's one thing. And then I'll end with a quote from um, an incredible man in Robert Kennedy, who is the younger brother of John F. Kennedy. Um, and he gave this um, speech to um, a group of African-Americans um, on the day that Martin Luther King Jr. was murdered. Um, and he says this in the middle of his quote. He says, in this difficult day, in this difficult time for the United States, it is perhaps well to ask what kind of a nation we are and what direction we want to move in. For those of you who are black, considering the evidence there evidently is that there were white people who were responsible, you can be filled with bitterness, with hatred, and a desire for revenge. We can move in that direction as a country, in great polarization, black amongst black, white amongst white, filled with hatred toward one another. Or we can make an effort, as Martin Luther King did, to understand one another and to comprehend and to replace that violence, that stain of bloodshed that has spread across our land with an effort to understand one another with compassion and love. Hmm. Amen. Let's pray. Yeah, Jesus, we, uh, we come before you, Lord, with hearts of repentance this morning. Uh, with hearts of mourning. Uh, I think of the way that uh, all through the Old Testament, you saw people tear their clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes as this visible sign. Uh, Lord, we, we adorn our hearts in that way. Uh, we, we mourn uh, with uh, families who have lost loved ones. We mourn with those who um, feel the, the, the heat, uh, the, the gro grotesque nature uh, of racism and uh, who feel they're living under that regime. Uh, it's we, we stand in solidarity with them, Lord, in the ways that we know how. And God, we offer up our hearts, our lives to you, saying, have your way, Jesus. Uh, convict us of the ways that we've been part of the problem. Uh, teach us to um, do what you did, Lord, and set aside all your privilege uh, in order to um, meet humanity at its lowest point, in order to see the kingdom of God break in. May we also set aside what's comfortable. May we set aside our privilege. Um, Lord, fill our minds, our hearts, our lives, our churches with vision uh, for your inbreaking kingdom, with vision of kingdom culture, uh, in which we say what's comfortable isn't going to cut it anymore, but there's, there's a new way that's possible in you, Jesus. And so we open ourselves up to those possibilities uh, and we pray for your empowering spirit uh, over us, over our nation, over our broken communities, over those uh, who are being looked down on and mocked and oppressed. Uh, Lord, have mercy. And we say, come, touch, heal our land and guide us into the future. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>